G'day, everyone. Quick message before we start. What we're trying to do with this podcast is to help people better understand their mind and how it works and give people practical strategies they can use to maintain and improve their mental health. Would you consider helping us to continue to do that with a financial contribution, large or small? If so, thank you. Just follow the link in the show notes. All donations, $2 or more, are tax deductible. Hello and welcome to Minding Your Mind, all about your mind and how it works and mental illness and mental health. With me is Professor Ian Hickey, psychiatrist and co-director of the Brain and Mind Centre at the University of Sydney. Today we have a special guest, Professor Ian Hickey, psychiatrist and co-director of the Brain and Mind Centre at the University of Sydney. Today we're discussing Ian's latest book, The Devil You Knew, The Myths Around Depression and why your best days are ahead of you. According to Ian, around 20% of us will experience depression at some point in our life. And Ian's book is a thorough study of what depression is, its causes, and importantly, how to treat it. Ian, of course, co-wrote the book that arose from this podcast, Minding Your Mind, Understanding Your Mind, Taking Control of Your Mental Health, with me. But this time, he decided to dispense with a co-writer and go it alone. Ian, why? So we've talked about depression a lot in this podcast. There's a chapter on it in our book, and it, it appears in several chapters in our book. So why did you want to write a whole other book about depression specifically. James, I'm not so good at sitting down and writing stuff. As you know, I'd prefer to talk about it. Mm. But I find myself in my professional life with people who are really in a difficult spot, yep. black hole. They're in the middle of stuff, and them and their families. And they think they know stuff, but it turns out they know very little about the situation they're in, very little about the options, and have what most people have, a sort of sympathetic kind of view, but not really a knowledgeable view yep. of what they need to know to get the best out of the health system, about the journey they're about to go on, what they need to take with them, who needs to accompany them, and what it's going to be like. So despite all the awareness raising, and I've been part of it myself for the last 25 years, mm. awareness raising in depression, when you're actually in that situation, there's stuff you really need to know. And if you're the carer, you're the wife, you're the spouse, you're the child or someone who is there on that journey, you need to know in order to push the health system to get the best care, to what we discuss here a lot, to get more personalised care, to get more effective care. And you just can't really access it. People go, oh, I've got on the internet, I've done research, most of which is misleading, many of which, much of which these days is really chaotic, including all sorts of things largely untrue or not relevant to you. Well, you know, I've Googled sometimes researching stuff for our podcast, various various things that we've talked about on the podcast, various topics, and usually find a lot of pretty seemingly accurate and useful stuff. Bits. Yeah. It's a smorgasbord of stuff. And, and you're a fan of empowering yourself and oh, going yeah. out there and getting knowledge, I mean, from your book, but there's also stuff on the internet. I wouldn't like people to think, well, the internet's dangerous, I shouldn't find out stuff there. There is more chaotic information out there, and there's frankly wrong information, not just in the internet, yeah. but, but we've reached a stage in the depression world where it's almost become boring to talk about the effective treatments. And there are a whole lot of new treatments, and there's a whole lot of self-treatment stuff 
which is also very limited in its scope. You can simply fix it by the right diet. You can simply fix it by exercising more. You should get a hold of yourself and just really control your sleep-wake cycle and that'll be it. Or also it's very sociological. It's because of something, current world crisis, worry about climate change, financial difficulties. That's why you're in the hole. And a lot of historic stuff, even more so these days, some of the ones I take on in the book, it's all trauma. It must have happened in childhood. Your parents must have done it to you, which is back. I thought we'd left that one behind, Mm. but it's back. But I I think what you say in the book is that that may be a cause in some cases, but it usually isn't. And that's the point. The point is, what is your own situation? Now, on the causation issue, I don't know if you've got the time. Well, let's get I try to, that get in a minute. to move beyond causation. Yes, let's get that into that in a minute. But I did want to ask you about the title, "The Devil You Knew," past tense. Why? We've emphasised this podcast many, many times, James. I actually think the causation question going backwards, which is what most people do, and then going backwards, almost condemning themselves to live with the devil. This has caused. This is what's oh, happened. So- I'm going to be stuck with this. I'll never really get over it. It'd be like the addiction thing, you know, alcoholic for life. Depressive for life, nothing's ever going to change. These are all the things that put me here. As distinct from what do you need to get out of the hole you're in, what do you need to go forward to find out effectively yep. for you so you can leave it behind? And in that sense, you know, some people have asked me why I've emphasized some particular stories in the book Malcolm Turnbull, Jeff Gallup, Gary McDonald, people who've been very successful, who recognize their own vulnerability, take steps to overcome it been fortunate enough to have received effective care or been able to move on and are leaving it behind. That kind of idea, the addiction one, I'm an addict or I'm a depressive mm. or I'm something and that's that's what I have to live with. That's my identity. That's my identity. That's who I am. And I'm. it isn't really who I want to be, but I've got this thing and it undermines me and it, it hurts me and it takes control of me. That devil idea, it takes control of me in certain circumstances. Yeah. So the empowerment, your, your comment about empowerment is really what the book is all about, empowering people who find themselves in this situation, plus their families, carers, and others, to leave it behind. Let's go back. We'll go to causes and treatments. Let's go back to what is depression. And I think probably everyone listening knows that feeling of, well, maybe maybe not everyone, hopefully not everyone, that gloom, sadness, sometimes despair or dread. Sometimes you have it over a specific event. Sometimes it comes for some hours. And and traditionally, depression has been thought of of having that feeling for an extended period of time. I guess what you say that in the book about what depression is that is perhaps controversial or at least somewhat surprising, that it is not clinical depression unless you have physical symptoms, which you describe as feeling like bad jet lag, fatigue, no energy. So why can't persistent feelings of sadness, doom and despair without physical symptoms equal depression? So one of the downsides of the marvellous depression awareness campaigns we've had in our country and elsewhere in the world over the last 25 years is to confuse a depressed mood, a sad mood, normal emotionality with the illness. So one of the other big motivations here is to say, look, 100% of us will be miserable. We'll be, well, 95% of us. There are some some people apparently lack emotional capacity, but the 95% of us who have emotional capacity will at times have all those things you just described, sadness, loss, grief, be concerned about the future, periods of being miserable about what is happening, often in relation to the life circumstances. That is normal emotionality. Now, a lot of critics of the industries I'm in 
Say you're just trying to remove that from the world. You're trying to make people numb. You're trying to remove and pathologize normal sadness. No. No. And the no, the easy. I mean, sadness is a, is a part of being. Yeah, life. but sadness for a while. And if you're in a bad situation and stuff happens and you've got stuff to regret and you've got concerns. So one of the problems is, in fact, to sort this out. And, in fact, there are a whole lot of movements in the psychological world and other worlds to say that clinical depression is just somewhat along that dimension you just mentioned of sadness by time or if it persists. Mm. I go, no, it isn't. So isn't it, 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 no. It, I mean, this is the, if, <laughs> if you feel sad and gloomy and I don't want to get out of bed, not because I'm physically unwell, I just don't, aren't motivated to anything. If you feel like that for six weeks, but physically you feel fine, that isn't depression. So the physically bit, we have to go a bit further here. Mm. I would, I would posit that if you were actually in bed for six weeks, there is a physical. Sleep. Yeah, you'll have a lot of physical factors: the sleep wake cycle, the energy factor, and if you then go and test it, the symptoms that people have. Now, this has been recorded for a very long time. One of the difficulties, also in our very psychological world now, is to reinforce the psychological bits. And not even to ask yeah. about the physical bits. Yep. Not even to ask about tiredness, your gut, physical pain, other sorts of manifestations, because we're so psychological that people go back to the psychology bit continuously and miss the physiology, that this is a perturbation of whole body systems, where the brain is controlling hormonal systems, immune systems, stress response systems, sleep-wake cycles, circadian body clocks that we discuss all the time, and they are all off. Hmm. They are actually demonstrably altered during these particular periods, leading many people to go to the doctor and say, I'm sick. The doctor says, you're depressed. You go, no, I'm not depressed. I'm sick. And this endless sort of silly argument that goes on, that if I've got physical symptoms, you get the reverse. People say, I can't be depressed because I don't enjoy anything. I don't have all these other problems, but I can't be depressed because depression is this psychological response to events mm. as their kind of understanding of what it must be. So this does go back to a very historic kind of concept. Do you like the Greeks? This goes way back to the Greeks. <laughs> this goes way back to Hippocrates and everything else. When depression was first described, and it goes back thousands of years, yeah. nothing new here. The physiological aspects of it. It's a great exhibition I saw in the Royal Society of Medicine in London uh, earlier this year, the Age of Melancholy. It's great. They have all the historical recordings. Like every time everyone's written something down and recorded about, it. Yes, about depression as an you illness. You would have loved that. I loved it. I spent a whole morning there. It'd be like Luna Park for you. <laughs> Look, it might have been everyone else's idea of a great day out, but it was. And I took endless photos, as one does with one's phone these days, hmm. of all the descriptions across all the ages and the stereotypic nature of these right. physical symptoms just repeated, observed by physicians. You know, great word for doctors. Observed by physicians since the ancient Greeks hmm. ongoing, that they are the essential core characteristics of depression, not just the psychological state, which has been so elaborated in modern times. Other psychological uh, symptoms of depression, you say, might be ruminating, obsessive, anxious thoughts, finding it hard to think things through. I mean, it, it's interesting. Interesting. If, if someone said ruminating, obsessive, anxious thoughts, I'd say you've got anxiety. But as we've as we've discussed in another episode of the podcast, there's a huge overlap between depression and anxiety. Yes. And so the book, it goes to our favorite theories of the trajectories of these things. And the most common form of depression, we would say, is anxious depression. It's people who are anxious who become depressed. <laughs> and when they get depressed, that anxiety gets really out of control. Mm. And vicious circle. Vicious circle. Yeah. So 
we discussed James a lot, anxious depression versus a kind of circadian body clock sign of depression versus depression associated with other physical health problems. So, so guess what you're on that? People think of depression as being depression, but there are different specific types, like different specific, I don't know, strains of the flu or something. So you mentioned anxious depression. You mentioned circadian depression. Tell us a bit more about that and also the other types. So the circadian one, the body clock one, as you know, my favourite preoccupation yeah. and subject of much of the personal research I'm tied up in, is really understanding that system, which is a system we did not understand well until recent times. The way it's tied to light-dark cycles, the way it's tied to regulation of many of our other eating patterns, feeding patterns, metabolic patterns, and importantly, our mood and cognition. And that it's the sort of what's classically been called atypical depression, the one that didn't respond so well to classical older antidepressant drugs, the ones associated or closely related to the depressed state of bipolar disorder, a manic depressive illness. So it's different. So depression like headache, like fever, like many other things, you know you're sick. But the general description of it doesn't take you very far. Mm. It simply describes the superficial characteristics or, or importantly, the characteristics that make you know you're unwell. Yep. But it doesn't tell you in a way which track you're on. And importantly, this is about trajectories. It is about what's the lifetime pattern here, not just that you turn up one day, which most people do and say, look, I'm depressed. They will lob in their doctor's office or they will lob in their school counsel's office. I'm depressed because my wife just left me. I'm just off my job or, you know, I'm in financial trouble. They, they turn up with the circumstances that have led to them coming for health care. Yeah. Not the cause. Yeah. Not the lifetime trajectory. So much more of this is about, mm, hang on, what sort of person you've always been like? What sort of kid were you like? What sort of teenager were you? Mm. What sort of what are the indications of the way in which you physiologically and psychologically change in relation to different circumstances? I'm trying to think of a metaphor, and the best I can come up with is if you're a hemophiliac and you kept coming to to emergency with cuts and they treated Bruises, the that's a nice bruise. You've yeah. Got, and, bumped yourself again, did you? And they put bandages or appropriate treatment for the cuts and bruises but they're never really getting to the underlying problem. That's a they? good one, James. I've never thought is, of that. Is that's it, an excellent. Thank is that you. Right? I'll, I'll do that that yes, because if you are, if you have hemophilia, and you say, what happened? You say, I knocked myself on the door. You go, oh, well, you knocked yourself on the door. It's a bruise. <laughs> and this is huge bruise. Yeah. You know, that bruise ain't like other people's bruises. Oh, and it's the 10th time you've been here mm. with minor injury, with that response. Yeah. Yes, good example. That goes to the other key point here. What is it about you? Not what is it about the circumstances, but the vulnerability issue, an issue we've discussed on this podcast with Malcolm Turnbull and yep. with others. You've got to accept the vulnerability. Now, this is true in cancer and elsewhere. People go, you know, what caused your cancer? Smoking. Lots of people smoke and do not get cancer. Hmm. Okay. Once you've got cancer, it doesn't matter whether you smoked or you didn't smoke. You've got Once you've got breast cancer, it doesn't matter whether you took hormones or you didn't take hormones. It doesn't matter what age you are. It matters that you have it. And you have a particular vulnerability. Something about you genetically, circumstances, has led to you being there. The only thing that matters now is getting the best possible treatment. Okay. But on that vulnerability, just going back to causes, you do say it's important to work out what your vulnerability is. So my vulnerability to depression is this, that, and the other. So if any of those things happen, I've got to be really careful, right? But Your vulnerability. Yeah. Yeah, yours. Now, be careful here. Yeah, keep going. Well, I'm just wondering- <laughs> You. This in, is about at, you. At some level, you say causes aren't that important. What's really important is treating it and getting better, and I totally get that. It's like, again, like cancer. I don't care how I got cancer. I want to know how I get better. But then causes are important because you've got to assess your own vulnerability so you can manage it 
So you don't get sick again. Good. Let's go to what I mean by vulnerability. Yeah, I've used the term here. First, it's you. You are vulnerable. Now, many people get depressed, have never thought that they are vulnerable. They think they're resilient. They think they're bulletproof. Yeah. It's never happened before. Why now? It's not me. There are lots of people who wake up and suddenly find they've got cancer. Why me? Hearted. Why me? Well, forget why or the justification or whether you've engaged in the behaviours that increase the risk or not. No matter what, you've got it. So the first thing you've got to about vulnerability is to accept that you've got it. Mm. And therefore, in certain circumstances or facing certain precipitants or whatever else, the chances are you'll get it again. Yep. If you don't accept that, and a lot of people I see reject that. No, I am okay. It's only because of the workplace incident. It's only because my spouse is a terrible person. It's only because my kids give me a hard time. It's only because I'm not financially secure enough. That's the reason I'm depressed. Mm. No, 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 no. Whatever those, all of those things might be risk factors. But let's come back to you. You, in certain circumstances at this stage of your life, do have it. So one of the vulnerability things is kind of owning it. Yep. Okay. To accept that you are vulnerable. But can you get more specific that yes. I have a vulnerability to depression? Yes. So try and understand then the type, the trajectory you're on. Now, James, you're marvellous because you talk about all the time the one that you take with you through your whole life, anxiety. Mm. Gary McDonald, great example yeah. through his whole life. He says, I've got anxiety. In fact, Gary goes in a lot of discussion about depression to constantly point out to people he's more interested in anxiety than he is in depression, even though he's been a board member of Beyond Blue and everything else and had severe depressive episodes. And the depression, when he's had it, is what's landed him in great trouble. But the vulnerability is the anxiety. Mm. That's the thing that's running on constantly. He needs to understand and manage all the time to reduce the risk. And with anxiety, I mean, yeah, I have a, a good understanding now of the specific things that are likely to make me anxious. And right. I'm aware of them and so here the vulnerability, anxious about them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the vulnerability is not the illness. It's, it's the intrinsic personal risk. Yeah. Okay. So for you, it's anxiety. Mm. Runs through. Jeff Gallup talks in the book. Jeff Gallup, you were never Premier of Western Australia, whatever. You know, he reflects on him. He's an anxious guy. I love to talk to Jeff. He likes it. He says to me just recently, you know, sort of guy that worries about things. I go, yeah, I know, which is one of your great – and he's really sensitive, great character. That's the vulnerability he takes with him. And if that gets out of control, then the chance of landing back in a depressive episode is very high. Those who've got body clock type abnormalities, right? it may be a concurrent physical illness problem that you have. So it's not going backwards, what did my mother do? What, not even going back and necessarily, you know, trying to find particular events that explain or try. As we've discussed many times, I don't think many people will ever find a comprehensive explanation as to why they are the way they are. Mm. <laughs> you know, we're not going to have an end, endless discussion as how you came to be an anxious person. More important is to say, I'm an anxious person. That's what I am. That is my yeah. vulnerability that I take with me that in the wrong circumstances, if I don't actively manage, has the capacity to land me in a bad spot. Yep. Does that make sense? Yeah, it definitely makes sense. So body clock, anxiety, concurrent illness. Now, some of that in, may require some reflection on the circumstances as well, so the, the interaction between your personal vulnerability and circumstances. If you're in a chronically stressful situation, a situation that never changes, mm. really bad in a personal relationship, et cetera, well, this becomes important to manage too. Okay, so the, I mean, this, factors that increase our risk of depression, there's two things, aren't they, that make us genetic factors and environmental factors. And you say that environmental factors like relationship problems, unemployment, financial problems, lack of physical activity, bad sleep can all increase our risk of depression. And underneath all that, it seems 
the key factor is stress. Chronic. Work stress, relationship stress, financial stress, not for a day, not for a week, but long-term. Ongoing, chronic. Is that really the big one in terms of changing a person who is well but who has a vulnerability to depression to someone who gets illness? Stress. What a good question. For some people, for some people, that's one of the things they got. By the way, change. by the way, l- listener, Ian was telling me before we started this. Oh, some some of the interviews I've been doing for this book, they're really good, you know. <laughs> so I'm really trying to lift my game. <laughs> trying to ask. You're trying to catch me questions. Yes. Yeah. For some people, yeah. some people, it's not chronic stress. It's change in season. But it's change in medication. It's another. Case. It's yeah. another factor. But stress must be a big one, yeah. Well, James, you're an anxious person, right? Yeah. So you're someone who surveils the environment a lot. Yeah. I mean, you're very sensitive to that. So there's an interaction here. Mm. And the reason I say that is sometimes people feel that the stress has to be overwhelming or it has to be a big event or, you know, like they kind of like have an idea about the nature of that. Well, there's a difference, isn't there, between if you think of two circles, you and the event, the size of the first circle the stress objectively, like whether it's a very minor work friction or a very large one, and then the size of your reaction to it. And you can have a big reaction to a small event or you can have a small reaction to a big event. Well, I'm slightly avoiding your question is in the book I go into the salience of the event. The The meaning of the event to you. Yeah, right. Right, so a lot of chronic stress people go, oh, well, it's accumulation of stressors, like the degree of financial stress or the degree of, you Mm. know, work stress or something and, you know, what seems big to me, what are you going on about? It doesn't seem so big yeah. to me, the thing you're going on about. Yeah. But the importance of that thing to you is quite high. Your response to it is to be chronically stressed. Yes. So the fact that you are chronically aroused, it's causing you physiological perturbations, it's upsetting your stress response system, it's leaving it permanently on. It may not be so obvious to others mm. what that actually is. Right. So it's not, yeah, people sort of go, well, I can't really see it. <laughs> you know? But there are things, I mean, for classic one being in interpersonal relationships, in marriages, in families, in other situations. There may be work situations that are really very difficult for you mm. or, or a work environment to which you are very poorly suited. Yeah. It's not that that same environment or different relationships would be the same to other people. So the two circles you drew, it's the interaction between the two, not, yes. necessarily, not, not necessarily the size of the stress or even what other people understand. A lot of stress research is about, there used to be the ones, you know, rate how big the stress is, death of a child, death of a spouse, you know, like rating scales. They're not nearly as important as what do people perceive? Mm. <laughs> Does it upset you? Now, if it upsets you, and it persists. It's chronically stressful. Yeah. That's bad. Yeah. Does that make and, sense? Yeah. A really easy example of that is that if, you're, if you're in a relationship and you have some common stress with a kid or with moving house or with money, then just so money's a, a good assess, example. assess how you both react and you'll react differently and one of you will handle it better than the other and that's because we're all different. Money's a good example. I mean, chronic financial stress and chronic difficulties is really important. Yeah. But actually, people cope with that really quite differently. Mm. Some people who are quite wealthy are totally fussed about their financial situation, right, right. claim to be poor. Yeah. Other people who have far less circumstances are less fussed about it. They, it's not, not such a central part of their life. So the interaction between the person and the situation matters. And understanding, therefore, your own response to those situations. Why do some things really irk you? 
and how do they persist? Then the question becomes, of course, what do you do about it? Well, now, you're a man who's changed his job. You're a man who's gone and done other stuff yeah, you, to yeah, find a world listen. or create a world that better suits you. Yeah. And, Lots and, of people don't. And, and that goes back, doesn't it, to something we've talked about before. I think, I don't know if it's Dorothy Rowe's theory, but the theory that depression can sometimes be an indication you need to take some time out and work out what's wrong with your life and fix it. Well, learn from it. I mean, I'm saying yeah. in the book, learn from it. If you're in that situation, you've got to learn something about it. If you yeah. just, if you're just helpless in the situation, it'll repeat itself. Yeah. You will not be leaving the devil behind. It'll be a frequent partner, journeyman, if you take no actions. If you go, no, it's not me, not me. It's just the financial pressure. It's just the wife. It's just the job. You learn nothing. You just continue with the same pattern. And then you're going, yeah, but I feel life's barely worth living. I, you know, I can't do anything. So the helplessness that goes with depression is itself problematic. Hmm. This is about the empowerment. This is about, hang on, hang on, get your head around it. You are in that situation. What is it productive to do? What do I learn about myself? Learn about my own vulnerability. What makes me in this situation has put me here. Now, to the extent that I can understand it, what I'm really discouraging is a long archaeological dig yeah. <laughs> for things you're never going to find. That's sort of Freudian analysis. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, it can be a biological one too. I mean, people can go endlessly searching for the genetics or endlessly searching in another part of the world. And, and perhaps I don't <laughs> – there might be book two in this. There's a whole – I'm a bit critical of the archaeological search for childhood trauma or other bits. There's also the archaeological search for the physical cause. Right? There's another critique of depression that says it's not really depression at all. It's all really another physical illness. And what doctors should do is stop talking about that and find the real physical cause. Again, a great illusion <laughs> that there'll be something there. It's distinct from, hey, we've got a lot of good options. The issue is finding the options in treatment and the sequence of treatments that works for you. Now, we will not know that. Immediately, I've made the comment in the book, one of my Precious daughters has pointed out to me, Dad, no test. There's no brain scan. There's no blood test no. that immediately tells you what it is and what to do. So you're going to have to go on this discovery journey. You're going to have to find out. And there's going to be probably going to be some trial and error mm. and try and work out and try to better understand what it is about you, the circumstances, but also from a treatment point of view, what's the most productive road to go down. So let's talk about treatments. You say- did you I, find it took a long way to get to the book? <laughs> it, someone pointed out to me, you've got to get to about page 300 before it gets down to the actual well, you can what works. Skip. You skip. You and can, I say at the front, if you want to start at page 300, feel free. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> One of the key messages is it's not like, well, I don't know, maybe, I don't know much about cancer, but chemotherapy, cancer, that'll get the tumour. It is more specific. You have to find out what sort of depression you have and specifically what treatments work for you, a message you emphasise a lot. But you do say that whatever the type, it is good to have an active listener. What is an active listener and why do we need one? The things that you're saying, when you're saying them, first of all, <laughs> you're going to say out loud stuff that's going on to your head with someone who's genuinely listening. Mm. But you also need the perspective of someone outside your own head to be picking up and playing back to you key nuances, key aspects of what you're uh, being heard. For example, you seem to be seeing everything through a very pessimistic lens. That is not an objective view of reality. Is that the sort of thing? At one level, yes. The challenging of obviously – distorted or changed facts. Mm. My kids no longer care about me. Your kids are sitting here crying <laughs> with you. <laughs> you, my spouse, no longer care about me. I've come with you to the doctor. 
It is actually very fr- now. He's active listening. Bit of feedback here. It is actually very frustrating to be with you at the moment because everything I say you reject. You don't want to have sex with me anymore. Actually, you haven't wanted anyone to touch you or be close to you for the last six months. <laughs> you know, no one at work cares about me. You haven't actually been to work. <laughs> For the last three months, you haven't rung anybody. You haven't returned those people who called. You won't come out to dinner anymore. I, you know, I try really hard. Well, you haven't actually been to the surf club. You haven't actually been to the golf club. You haven't actually played tennis with your friends. It is an active listening. It's not an aha, okay, aha, yeah, good. It is this active and it's picking up things from people you're really close to. So the people you're close to. And it's hard. I think, I don't know, if, do you think I make this put in the book well enough? It's often very hard for people who, you really, who really care about you to be with you when you're yeah. depressed. Yeah, you do. Yeah. And this is one of the really difficult things because the danger then is those people back off. Well, but, and they stop listening because they really can't have the argument again and again and again. It's too frustrating. It's too tense. It's a very fine calibration, isn't it? Between saying those hard truths to people, it is very frustrating to be with you. We, you know, we are having the same conversation again and again. You have the same response response all the time, but that can very easily lead to you're not on my side. You don't care about me. Yes. So the the first piece about the active listening, uh, I don't think it's helpful to always get into just a continuous argument because, but it's the listening too. But there is this reflection; it's active. It's not just listening and just going, you know, just taking it in. Isn't yeah. the active bit of implied? So it's more than just, I guess, sympathy. You poor thing. Yeah. If there's one thing I hate in the world, it's sympathy. If there's one thing I is love, it? it's empathy. The difference between sympathy and empathy, we get a whole other episode, is huge. Lots of people are sympathetic, mm. but they're not empathic. They don't really get it. Well, I mean, we might do an episode of this, but in one sentence or maybe two. I can feel sad for the situation you're in, but have no real understanding of what it's like to be in your situation. That's sympathy. Sympathy, yeah. The empathy is the other way around. I'm not necessarily going to be upset by your situation, but I really understand the situation you're in. I can really be in your shoes. Right. Which is hard because no one really knows what it's like to be depressed. When you're not depressed. Right. So going back to where you started, 20% of people in their lifetime and about 5% of people in a year will be depressed. Of course, that means that 80% of us never will be. And in any particular year, 90% of us definitely aren't. But we we go, oh, yeah, I get it. I get it. Mm. Oh, depression. Yeah, yeah, that's that being sad all the time. That's whatever the Yeah, yeah. I get it. I understand. Must be hard for you. That's sympathy. Right. Not very helpful. Right. The active listeners are empathic. Now, the active listeners, I've, I've sort of in the book going to two things. One's family and how far you can go as family. The other is professionals mm-hmm. need to be active listeners. So you need people who are also hearing things that they recognize from a lot of experience with others to pick up on. And obviously, maybe it's not obvious, independent third parties can often say stuff <laughs> that families can't. They can pick up threads. They can be empathic without actually being responsible, if you like. You know, they're not they're, – they're actually bringing their professionalism to play and they're picking up threads and understandings that people who are less familiar with the situation wouldn't. And they can point that out to you. Yeah. And, I'm and the only so person in the world who ever thought this way. Well, uh, nobody. And it's a very stereotypic way to think. And what will happen next is – and I, I've got a fair bet you're thinking X, Y, Z. 
you know, not mind reading, but just from familiarity of many people in this situation, the sort of thoughts they get into. So this active reflection of what's going on backwards and forwards is enlightening. So I guess when you... When you have when you are, have an active listener, if you have depression, whether that be a therapist or a family both, member or both, a friend, both. get both. Yeah, but there is for some people with depression, they might think hmm, maybe they're right. Maybe they're right. They're right. I haven't been out recently. I, I should do that. But other people might think you're here, supposed to be supporting me, and all you're doing is indicating that you think I'm not trying hard and you think I've got it wrong and you're now becoming the enemy. I mean, it's very it's very tricky, isn't it? Active listening isn't easy. Yeah. <laughs> this is for the listener. <laughs> but I guess the hope is that even if there is conflict at the time, you don't understand me, blah, 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 afterwards someone might reflect and a bit of it might seep in. Both. Mm. At the time, the fact that you're in the conversation. Yeah. The role of being in the conversation isn't simply to agree. Mm. You're not just a sponge for anything that gets said. So even though you might find yourself in a degree of conflict and sort of disagreement with someone when they're really in that state, the fact that you're in there, the fact that you're engaged, so the nonverbal communication part of that is really important. Mm. That despite, and this is really for families and others, despite the difficulty of those conversations, I've sat with many families and had many examples of families who are entirely frustrated with the person who's depressed, <laughs> typically a dad, you know, who's in being entirely unreasonable and entirely blaming everyone yep. else. And it's really tough. But they're there. They're sitting next to the person. They've dragged the person into my office. They've insisted they get care. They've stuck with them, despite the fact their own frustration with the situation mm. is through the roof. But the nonverbal communication that they care is also quite obvious. Mm. And it's interesting in myself. But does it help? Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Don't give up. Yes. First of all, it's the most important way of keeping the person in care who would otherwise often drop out of care. Right. The reliance on that social group, others, to continue to present the person to care, mm. to options that may help. Mm. Left on their own, many people would disappear from that mm. and disappear to their own destructive ways of coping. Do you think that some people go beyond encouragement? Come on, let's go and let's go to the counselling session to, you know, blackmail <laughs> Like Coercion? If, yes. Yeah. Yeah, no. And is yes. that a bad thing? If, if No, it's not a bad thing. Mm. In many situations, what's the alternative? Mm. The person retreats themselves in a really bad state and engages in behaviours that are only harmful and at times life-threatening and certainly destructive. Mm. People who are really depressed do not choose great options. Yeah. And many, many, many men, many men that I see. Someone said, why do you have so many men examples in this book? I don't think it's really filled with men examples, but there are some. I said, for God's sake, they're the ones we don't see. They're the ones who will not come to terms with their vulnerability. They're the ones who have their own explanation. The world's always to blame. They're the ones who won't take steps. Mm. And without family and others, they're the ones who won't turn up. That's one group. Do you think people in, you know, talking about the stereotypical middle-aged man with depression... Do you think their partners sometimes get to the point where they're behaving in an erratic way and I can handle that, but I've got to think about the kids too and they feel almost, you know, torn. Do I give care to him or do I, do I kind of do something to try and insulate the kids from this? Can I do both? Is there a conflict? Yes. And when it's, well, of course, that is the situation mm. when the situation is poorly managed, mm. typically when the bloke is drinking. Right. or is abusive, or is irritable and refuses to get care, 
and that's gone on for a long period of time. Not surprisingly, many mothers, wives in that situation will retreat to protecting themselves and protecting their kids because mm. they've been unable to resolve the situation. And the bloke's going, there's nothing wrong with me. Mm. <laughs> Every The whole world can see there's something wrong with you, but you aren't being in it. So, yeah, that's not surprising. And, of course, with chronic depression, a lot of the stuff is about intervening earlier, getting effective care, because the consequences of chronic depression for a middle-aged bloke, another big emphasis in the book is really about young people. I hope there are enough examples in the book about young people. Young people who are in this situation for the first time don't have a life experience of, of stuff and have their own explanations, a lack of familiarity. And most of this stuff starts in teenage years and young adults. Whole big emphasis at work these days of trying to intervene earlier to try and change those patterns or find effective treatments where we can, as quickly as we can, to not get into those situations. So yeah, chronic depression, untreated depression is disastrous. So if there's a real passion or why I've really written the book is the complete frustration of seeing people whose lives are ruined yeah. by never having, and then they're trivialized. Oh, it's depressed. We all get depressed. You know, and you've, you've just pathologized something that's actually just a normal life experience. There's nothing normal about this when you're really in the, when you're really in a really deep hole, there's nothing normal about it. Talking about, talking about abnormal behaviour when you're in a deep hole, when I was a legal aid lawyer, there was a category of offender that I could never understand, and they were women between 30 and 50, often not working, sometimes with kids, who were going through a difficult time, and shoplifted stuff they didn't need that was about worth five bucks or something until they got caught. And the theory was you know, theory by lawyers, not psychiatrists, that they kind of wanted to get caught because that would that would force them to address their underlying issues, which are always mental health related. And once they got caught, their lawyer would say, go and see a psychologist, a bear report, they'd start treatment. Have you seen much of that? And yeah, It's a very common one. I mean, used to, yeah, what happened to that was. one? It used to be a common one. I, I hadn't quite heard the lawyer explanation for it before. Yeah, <laughs> the right. The psychiatrist's explanation was it was the kind of just – grabbing sort of stuff, a kind of like trying to now, – now, a central aspect of depression is lack of pleasure, right? The anhedonia kind of Getting thing. a thrill. Yeah, just getting a thrill, just getting a pleasure. Feeling something. Just grabbing something yeah. that you Danger, want. Danger, excitement. You just want something or you yeah. just take something. You're just almost trying to evoke – not to get caught, I would say, but almost trying to evoke an emotionality, trying to grab something pleasurable again mm. and, and in a different kind of way. Where the ordinary pleasure, the ordinary pleasure of ordinary purchasing, the ordinary pleasure of things has gone, and a real sense that you've you've lost the sensibilities of what would norm the normal. I like quite like shopping. The normal pleasure of shopping is gone, or it's just yeah. not normal. And you're lost in this emotional state of trying to find some objects or find some stuff that will reignite a normal pleasure yeah, response right. with the world. So, so we've talked a lot about. Because it's interesting because people do other stuff in terms of sex and in terms of alcohol, yeah. in terms of drug abuse. The same sort Acting of out, they call it. The same search for emotionality. I'm emotionally dead. Another thing about so depression, I'm not sad. Much more commonly, I'm emotionally dead. dead. And I've got to find something that actually, or I'm drawn to, it's not really thought out, I'm drawn to stuff that simply makes me feel alive again. Yeah. Can't stand this feel, cannot live with this sense of being dead inside. Yep. So we've talked a lot about talking, but you're a behaviourist. There's a lot in the book about medication, and I feel like the audience- A little are, too much. I thought I kept it under no, control, no, mostly. No, medication's <laughs> good, but, but I feel like, you know, probably those listening to our podcast don't need to be convinced about the benefits of medication. Do you think? As much as some. 
Well, I, I thought that 20 years ago and I thought that 10 years ago and then every day of my life people go, oh, doesn't, don't, isn't it true, brought to you by your ABC recently, isn't it true that antidepressants just simply cause people don't work, cause people to be more suicidal, ruin their sex lives and generally aren't worth the effort? I go, oh, come off it. <laughs> the worldwide evidence is The real challenge of the antidepressants in the modern age is quite a lot of them. And they're not, some of them are a lot the same and some are different. The real challenge is finding which ones, which types are most likely to match the kind of depression you've got. And that can That's take a bit of trial and error. There's a bit of trial and error. There is no simple blood test. Pleasant. There's no simple genetic test. We're working on one. Trust me, we're working on one. But we ain't there yet. Mm. And so there can be trial and error. And you need to know more. If a doctor, any doctor, prescribes, says I've prescribed five antidepressants, but in fact they're all different brands of the same tomato sauce. You have not tried five different antidepressants. You've tried five different types of the one thing. There's a need to know what is different, different classes, different types. They have different side effect profiles. They have different likelihood of benefit for you. They're in the book. That's what the book says. Yeah, that's why the book says, look, interrogate your doctor. (laughs) Before you prescribe me this or that, why? And what group does it belong to? And what's likely to happen? And if it doesn't work, then where do we go? And true or false, the evidence suggests that the two most effective uh, ways to treat depression are medication and therapy, talking. Yes. Yes. Now- Not equally likely for all people, though. No, that's true. But I wanted- You're a behaviourist, and we've talked about talking, and we've talked about medication. It's almost like the magic bullet, the one we haven't understood at all, is one of the most- treatments for depression is one of the most simple things, and that's moving. Yeah? Activity. Yeah. Motor activity. Get out. When you say I'm a, mo- I'm a behaviorist, I should explain myself here. I sound like a very, you yeah. know, I don't care what goes on in your head. Well, you I do. Wanna, I want to change what goes on in your head. <laughs> I am actually interested in it, but I don't want to just- behavior. Yeah. Because- Behave differently. Yes. Differently. So the behave. Yes, exactly, James. So that many of the, many of us believe wrongly- that we must think something in order to do something. I'm from the, we must do something do in it. order to think something. Yeah. We, when we're doing things, we think differently. We move, movement's really important. We move differently. We, our emotions are different. That, and in fact, what's happening in modern brain circuitry, which you go into a little bit in the book, there are different brain circuits basically tied up with what do I think when I'm doing nothing? What do I think when I'm doing something? And what are the brain circuitries or the clutch that sits between those two gears to allow you to shift from one to another? And a lot of the depressive stuff is the stuff you get stuck on when you're stuck in your own head, not doing anything. Example is cleaning your teeth. So when you clean your teeth, you don't think, oh, should I clean my teeth now? Do I want to clean my teeth? Can I be bothered cleaning my teeth? You don't, do you? You just go on autopilot and it happens automatically because it's an ingrained habit. You don't think about what your attitude to cleaning your teeth is. You just do it. And, And that's the sort of thing in a way that, Kind of, you, you want people, like you don't think, have I got enough energy to walk around the block? You, you know, can I be bothered? Am I motivated? You just want them to do it and not think about any of that stuff. Just make themselves do it because it'll make you feel better. Yep. So for all those people who say they hate work, they hate school, they hate schedules, they hate routines, <laughs> forget it. We love them. Hmm. You know, if I had to lie in bed in the morning and say, now this morning, do I have the energy to get out of bed? Can I move my somewhat here. somewhat painful musculoskeletal system? Shall I you know, take a vote on that? The vote nine out of ten would have been to stay in bed. Mm. Right? The worst thing in the world for all of my mood, my activity, my musculoskeletal stuff would have been to stay in bed. Yeah. As distinct from, 
I'm agreeing to be here with you this morning. I've got work to go to. I've got things to go to. And as a consequence of that, I start to engage in activities. I move. Yeah. The move. Try and get in the sunlight. Try and move. It's when really I move, guess what? It's a beautiful spring morning here in Sydney. Outside, the sun's out. Body clock. On timing, right. on yeah. I'll sleep better tonight as a consequence of having got out of bed this morning. If I'd sat there and thought about it, lay there and thought about it, none of that would have happened. Last question: A vaccine for depression? Whoa, is it possible? Well, in the ordinary vaccine sense, no. Although people have thought about it, mm. as I go into the book, people in the biological kind of reductionism type way of thinking about it, could we? Now we know there are brain circuits and we know there are errors. Could we mess with the thing to prevent mm. it? Not likely. Uh, the brain systems are far more complicated than producing a vaccine for a virus. But the idea of trying to have things in society that prevent it in the first place yeah. is very attractive. So people are trying to think of the right combination of social vaccines, of social factors. Okay. Social cohesion, our personal favourite right up the top, being connected to a group, yeah. regulating sleep-wake cycles. Going back to the movement thing, you bet – Having coping skills, having skills that actually enable people to cope with anxiety. Can we get the right social factors? We say this because it appears as if the epidemiology, the prevalence of these things in our society is going the wrong way. So it looks at the moment as if we have social factors affecting children and young people, which are pushing the depression statistics up rather than down. So we do need to look at the range of social factors and think about it like vaccination. The reason about vaccination, vaccination works when everyone does it. Yeah. Right, you've got to have a large public health commitment to doing it. Bit complicated at the moment because we only know some of the things that are likely to help. We don't know everything. I don't know. Did you get to end the book and feel I've got more questions? No, there's, <laughs> there's lots of, of there's lots of things. We, did I get to say it often enough? The Rumsfeld thing. We don't know what yeah, we don't yeah. know. We there's don't a lot know, of just to be clear. At this point in time, there's also a lot we don't know. Mm. But just because we don't know stuff doesn't mean we can't make the most use of the information, the knowledge that we currently do have. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, if you think about how much we more we know now than we did 20 or 30 years ago, think how much we'll, we'll know by 2050. Oh, no, it wasn't that long. Yeah, stuff right. that's happening at the moment, I'm only going to this in small detail, but stuff that's happening at the moment with new brain stimulation techniques, yes. physical techniques, new pharmacological approaches. We had big breakthroughs about 30 years ago, but actually in the last five years, big things are happening. And on the genetics front, understanding what, what your genetic vulnerability might be, on the brain test front, in terms of new treatments, it's a good time to engage in this business. Ian's book is called The Devil You Knew, The Myths Around Depression and Why Your Best Days Are Ahead of You. If you've got any questions or comments about today's episode or about anything to do with mental health, or if you want to suggest further topics for us to discuss, we've been getting some great suggestions and would love more, uh, do send us an email at mindingyourmind2, that's mindingyourmindnumeral2 at gmail.com. Ian's book is out, as is our book that we co-wrote, Ian and I, Minding Your Mind. And two for one. Two for Go to your best bookshop, two for one. You don't actually get two for one, but it's a good thing to say. Uh, you get two for the price of two. Minding Your Mind is supported by the generous philanthropic donations from families who support ongoing research into youth mental health. Further help's available from Headspace, Beyond Blue, Head to Health and Lifeline. Google them or you can call Lifeline on 131114. 